Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us to be members of thy household and the heirs of thy kingdom. So that as we face a world that is destined to ruin and destruction, we have the privilege of knowing that we are heirs of no mean kingdom, that we are destined to victory, that thou, Lord, wilt establish us in permanence and strengthen us in thy service and in terms of thy victory. Prepare us, therefore, by thy word, that we may expect great things Thee, do great things for thee, and rejoice in the abundance of thy blessings. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our scripture is from the Gospel of St. Luke, verses 28 through 48. Of the 19th chapter, Luke 19, verses 28 through 48. When he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethany and Bethany. The mount called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a cold tide, whereon yet never man sat. Loose it, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do ye lose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath and they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them, as they were loosing the coat, the owner thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the coat? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. But they brought him to Jesus. And they cast their garments upon the coat, and they said, Jesus, we are on. As he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now to the center of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto the master, rebuked by disciples, he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if he should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belonged unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thy eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a strength about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. He went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought. Saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it as den of thieves. He talked daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him, and could not find what they might do. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. The Gospels, as they record the 
events of Palm Sunday, call attention over and over again to one particular incident. The Pope. As they prepared to go into Jerusalem, our Lord sent disciples out to the neighboring village to get food. He ordered his disciples simply to go up and take the folk, declaring, The Lord hath need of him. No promise of payment was to be made. No promise that the folk was to be returned. Simply this, The Lord hath need of him. The folk was confiscated. He was simply taken over. And Jesus, by that act, declared the essence of his position and his ministry. By that act, he declared himself to be God, to be sovereign. Because it was an act of eminent domain. Now the essence of eminent domain is simply this. It is an assertion of sovereignty. And in eminent domain, the sovereign exercises the right to take everything in the realm because it is his property, ultimately. It is his possession. Jesus Christ as very God of very God. As the Creator, he by whom all things were made and without him was not anything made that was made. Asserted in that act that as Lord of all creation, he had come to claim that which was his. Sovereignty did not belong to kings and to governments, civil governments. It was not an attribute of state, it was an attribute of God. For to God alone belongs dominion, to God alone belongs sovereignty. And God alone, therefore, has the right of eminent domain. So his march into Jerusalem began with an assertion of that sovereign right. The Lord, that is God, the King, has need of him. It was a declaration also of his right to possess all Israel and the entire world. When he marched into Jerusalem and got off the cold, he walked into the temple. Now the liberal meaning of the word temple is that it is the house or palace or throne room of a god. And thus the temple was the throne room of Almighty God. And Jesus walked into it and cast out the money changers and said, My house is a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. It was his house, his palace, his throne room. They had no right to turn it over to thieves. And this is what the priesthood had become. Eminent domain. This is what Jesus proclaimed on Palm Sunday from start to finish. Now let us turn back to an incident that took place centuries before. Samuel the prophet was ruler over the Hebrew conflict. The people rejected him 
and said they wanted to abandon the old form of government and have a monarchy. There was no eminent domain in the Hebrew conquest. God, as the king of Israel, alone had the power of eminent domain. And no judge, no tribal head or governor had the right to exercise such a power. When they rejected Samuel, he went to God in grief. God rebuked him and said, They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. But I should not reign over them. God ordered Samuel to speak to the people and to make clear to them what it meant for them to reject God as their sovereign and to make the state their sovereign, to make a king their sovereign. He said, first, he will take your sons and appoint them for himself, so that he will exercise his power of sovereignty of eminent domain to take your sons and to make them his servants, to do his will. He will make them part of his labor battalion. And he will force them to make his instruments of warfare. He will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. Moreover, he will expropriate your fields and your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his will. He will take the tenth of your sheep. He shall be his servants. This nine point program of confiscation. God said to Samuel, is the result of your choice, of the people's choice, of another sovereign than God. Because the kings of this earth, the powers of this world, when they claim the right to be gods over men, will exercise eminent domain. They will seize and confiscate and destroy. This is the consequence of having another sovereign than God. Now the consequences again of this choice on the part of Israel are being brought home to them by Jesus Christ. As he looked out over the city, he wept. They had rejected him. They did not recognize his sovereignty and his eminent domain, and therefore they would face his judgment. Not one stone would be left standing upon another. even though his disciples hailed him, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people and the leaders want him on their terms, not on his. As king, he entered the temple of the house as king, he blasted the fig tree, the symbol of fruitless Israel. As king and prophet, he prophesied the downfall of Jerusalem and Judea for their rejection of him. The 
as king and priest, he went to the cross to establish and usher in his kingdom. And that last week, after Palm Sunday, as he taught them on the last day that he visited the temple, Wednesday, he expounded the parable of the wicked husband. The Lord had a vineyard, and he gave it into the care of certain men. These men perversely and wickedly rejected the ownership of the Lord and seized as much as they could get away with. And when servants were sent to collect what would the Lord do, they beat them or killed them and threw them out. So the son sent his, the son was sent by the Lord to declare the Lord's rights. They fought against him, saying, Let us kill the son and inherit the vineyard. Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken to you and given to a nation which shall bring forth the fruits thereof. And he, the Lord, shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. When they, the people and the leaders, heard it, they said, They knew what he was talking about. He had come in as God the Son. He had asserted his right of eminent domain. They denied it. They were sovereigns. They exercised it, not God. They were outwardly of the church. They were priests. They were lawyers. They were supposedly the pillars of God's people. They wanted the church to reflect their will. But the church is not a democracy. And the kingdom of God is not a republic. It is an absolute monarchy governed by God's word, by God's law. In our relationship to God, we deal with an absolute sovereign. He is the king of the universe, who possesses and blesses as he wills and confiscates and destroys as he wills. And when this absolute sovereign, God the Son, marched into Jerusalem, they tried to use him rather than to be used. They tried to possess him rather than to be possessed. They hailed him, expecting him to be their kind of king. Immediately were outraged when he asserted that the sovereignty belonged to God. So it was, they turned on him. They conspired against him and turned him over to Pilate to be tried. Pilate sent him to Jesus. And he said, Would you have me crucify your king? And they said, We have no king but Caesar. This was an inescapable problem. Because the issue is Christ or Caesar. And sovereignty is an inescapable fact of life. You do not, when you deny God, deny the fact of sovereignty. Sovereignty is inescapable. It has to reside somewhere. And when it is denied to God, it immediately goes to man, to the state. 
And so if you refuse to have God as your sovereign, then the state will become your sovereign. Sovereignty is always a part of our work. The question is, where will it reside? With God or with Caesar? So when they denied Jesus Christ, they had no other choice but to say, We have no king but Caesar. And those who have denied Christ in the church today and in Washington today and in London and elsewhere have no choice. Whether they are preachers of the social gospel or presidents of the United States or prime ministers of England, their gospel is simply this, we have no king but Caesar. Sovereignty is an inescapable fact of life. Deny it to God, and you surrender to Caesar. But God is the only complete sovereign. It is He who alone can create. He alone who governs, and he alone who judges. As he declared in Deuteronomy 32, 39, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Thus, when any people denies the sovereignty of God and denies his eminent domain, they fall into the hands of Caesar and into his power of eminent domain. And the judgment of God is often upon them. How small, how insignificant the disciples seem compared with the power the Sanhedrin and of Rome. Yet our Lord prophesied the fall of Jerusalem and declared of old through the mouth of Daniel that out of him should come a people and a power that would crush Rome and all other powers before him. And Jerusalem is God. And Rome is God. And the Caesars of our day will soon be gone. And this true church shall prevail. There shall not be left one stone standing upon another of the Jerusalem that is from below. And just as the Jerusalem then was to destroy the physical, the Antichrist Jerusalem of the day that surrounds us and that commands pulpit after pulpit will be destroyed. But it is declared we have no king but Caesar. This is our social doctrine. Wherever God is dethroned and mental name then flows from God to the state. And sovereignty flows from God to the state. But the state is a thief. It cannot create. God creates. And the state trespasses. It enters into God's domain and claims God's sovereignty. It claims God's eminent domain, and therefore, when it exercises it, it exercises to enslave man. 
when a thief enters the house. The only way he can function is to tie you and your family down. And then he rots. Since he is only interested in that which serves him, he is heedless of all else and destroys. This is the eminent domain of the state. This is the sovereignty of the state. It is not created. It is purely destructive. But God as Lord, having sovereignty, having the right of eminent domain, cares for and protects his property with And which every country and people that claims God and their sovereign are one. The state's eminent domain is for our enslavement. Christ's eminent domain is our freedom. Because we are his Gates of hell cannot prevail against us. Because we are His, cares for us all. So it is today as we face the power of those who declare we have no faith in Caesar. Grant it us. Because Paul. Is a declaration of Christ's eminent domain. And that which proves faithful to him, he destroys. And that which proves to be a false city, a false Jerusalem, he destroys. And the state today is busy condemning what does not belong to it to embark upon its urban renewal program. But Jesus Christ today declares unto us, even as he declared unto Jerusalem, his urban renewal program, Jerusalem shall be destroyed and not one stone left standing upon another. Under the city of man, under the church of the social gospel, Jesus Christ declares again his urban renewal program. I alone have the right of eminent domain, and you having betrayed me and denied me, I declare unto you that not one stone shall be left standing upon another. For my house should be a house of Let us then say, as against those who cry out around us, we have no king but Caesar. Die, brother Caesar. As for me and my household, we are the Lord's. Let us pray. Our Lord, Give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us and set us apart to be thy people. For thou art our king and our protector, our shield and our defender. Assure defense and be thankful. So our God, we commit ourselves unto thy government. We thank thee that thou art Thou hast made us thy people through thine atonement, God. That thou didst declare thy sovereignty on Palm Sunday. That by thy grace thou hast chosen us, made us sons and heirs of thine eternal kingdom, of the Jerusalem which is from above. 
It is strong, therefore, in the confidence of our Father. We are citizens of him. We have a sure defender. Bless us for this purpose. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. Can I ask a question not related to the last That's something that's been bothering me a little bit. Because I may use the word, I use the word paradox. Uh, do we see paradoxes in the human society? For example, uh, in India today, because of their religion, uh, they'll start as an indication and yet in our election, the people will vote for the Yes. Very well put. Yes. Uh, we are fighting the communists in Vietnam. Right. You'll see this in work. The hero was fighting communists abroad. And he's Germany, but his girlfriend in England was a communist. But she was idealistic, you know. I don't know, but there was. His girlfriend was a communist. Yes. This is the blindness of unbelief, which leads it to do exactly those things that are most destructive of it. And the verse in the Old Testament that is most often quoted in the New is the latter part of the sixth chapter of Isaiah, where the Lord says to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people flat, and make their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. This blinding whereby they are guilty of this self-contradiction, this paradoxical behavior, is God's will. God's judgment on these people for their sin and their apostasy. It's interesting that the other passage in the Old Testament, which is most often quoted, the second most often quoted in the New Testament, is Psalm 2, which asserts God's victory over the world of conspiracy. He that sitteth in the circle of the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in the He shall break them in pieces. Another question or comment? The uh, right of eminent domain that is expressed in uh, Exodus and Isaiah and which he commands Israel to uh, go into all nations and uh, later the commandment of Abraham to go forth in the land of purple and Canaan and, into, and uh, later on is Exercised by God, very definitely, very uh, well put. God exercised. God requires, not man, not the church. He doesn't really take that right. And you see, in history, we find this that the right of eminent domain during the early part of feudalism was not exercised, it was not believed in because they were building a Christian order. It was one of the things that our founding fathers resented most. They did not want it. And part of the 
difficulty which led to the War of Independence was the exercise of eminent domain, because the King of England claimed the right to the best timber in the American forests for the mast of his ship. And so he would send his men into the forest to mark the trees with the king's mark, because these were for the king's navy, for the king's ship. And the attitude of the Americans was simply this. What right does he have to take these, the best tempers? Why doesn't he get onto the free market like the rest of us who are shipbuilders and buy them? And their attitude is a logical one. And so this led to a great deal of conflict between King George the First and Father, this claim dominant domain. They did not believe the state had it. And I think they were right. God alone can exercise it, as we so well demonstrated in those citations. Isn't there a right of eminent domain now in some state laws and they just want to limit There is a plain eminent domain by county, state, and federal government now. Yes, very pronounced. Is that It has uh, crept in gradually and been exercised with increasing power since World War One and with exceeding frequency. Now, one of the most common arguments you find in justification of the right of eminent domain is road construction. But road construction was once believed to be entirely a private enterprise. And as a matter of fact, in the last century, when Rhode Island began to build the first state-supported turnpike, they had to drop it because the people rose up in protest. They said, it's no different than establishing a church out of tax funds. Why should we put money out of our pockets to take care of those who want to use the roads? Let those who want to build a road do it as a free enterprise project, and let those who want to drive pay for the purchase. So the construction was halted. Yes. I wonder if you want to uh, mention this article I saw I'm going to do it for you. This is the one on the criminology from uh, Santa Barbara who wants to prosecute the criminal in corporation. Yes, this is an interesting article from the uh, Los Angeles Times, Sunday, March 20. And this Santa Barbara criminologist least speaking in Santa Barbara, asks that gang bosses be prosecuted as corporations rather than as individuals. Now, this is a very dangerous thing. Our law says that you cannot prosecute a family because the father is guilty of a crime. And you cannot prosecute a church because a member commits a crime. Nor can you prosecute, say, the John Burke Society because a particular member has committed an offense, if you can. Now, to prosecute criminal gangs as corporations rather than as individuals is to destroy law and order and to leave the way wide open to prosecute any organization or any group of people under any fancy law. What they have done steadily is to destroy the law whereby the police can operate. So what are they going to do? They are creating a crime problem. And their answer is more power to the state at the top 
to take over what was being handled at the local level. And this will open the door to the prosecution of any group if it should ever be adopted. I doubt that we shall see its adoption, but I have no doubt that they will certainly attempt to have such legislation. But it is fantastic. It is a violation of everything that hundreds of centuries of biblical faith have worked to produce. Could it just be that the original corporation that was yesterday, the Hells Angels, recognized by the Department of the State Government, uh, could it be because the Hells Angels are a national uh, group that uh, this could, could tie into the thing and they'll then prosecute the Hells Angels being the head of publicity, free publicity, anti, and then attack them in a very few people first in the country of defense? And that would set the legal precedent. Right. It's easy, you see, to destroy our liberties by attacking them in someone who is obviously a hoodlum or a criminal. We want to see them behind bars. And so they will do it in such a way as will enable them to destroy anyone who resists them, including us. It's a diabolical business. But they are in these things claiming a sovereignty that belongs to God and God has his word concerning them and God hasn't missed once yet. All the enemies of God so far have died and you can go to their graves but you can't find God's grave anywhere. I wanted to ask you about an insurance company that we just heard about. Maybe this has happened before, but it was new to me where the insurance company knew it was 50 50 the fault of one to the other. How is this going to be? They change any of the decisions on this is not a bill that hits another and investigating each insurance company decided to go to the half one state and half the other one. Now, I don't know too much about that, but I do believe that uh, there is valid precedent for that, in that a person who is guilty in a situation doesn't have a valid claim, you have to come with clean hands for the law and a valid right to prosecute someone else. I'd have to know a little more about that. I'm not an expert in that area of insurance claims and have very little knowledge of it. Yes. I have something that's kind of interesting. Don't hear when we ran into yesterday, um, we ran into a young man and his wife who recently came to this country. And um, one of the strikes possessions I have here is a nineteen fifty nine November issue of Mercury magazine. And um, I thought it over so that you could see it. Because in fact, it shows um, some of the terminology and the words that have been changed in the Bible. But one of the things that is interesting here is that early in 1959, Chief Justice Warren of the United States uh, resigned from the American Bar Association in protest of the public release of the report of the American Bar Association citing 23 major decisions in the Warren Court up to that date, uh, which uh, were termed favorable to the Communist conspiracy and injurious to the United States. But uh, so that is something here at Newman's, and I don't quite know whether you might want to 
Baptist which is reports of the standard versions of the Bible put out by the Council of Churches. Yes, well, all these translations, these new versions, are progressively altering uh, the basic text of the scripture more and more. calls attention, for example, how the New Revised Standard Version has, in Matthew 125, omitted firstborn uh, in the verse brought forth her firstborn son. So, firstborn is omitted. And then, in, well, it gives numerous examples where anything that points to the deity of Christ, as well as his virgin birth and a good many other things, the resurrection, are clearly omitted. And this actually, uh, glancing through it hastily, is a, a summation of just some of the more important ones. You could go through and have a small booklet of the changes that have been made. And as I say, this gets worse with each translation. It is worse in the New English Bible than it was in the Revised Standard Version. It will be far worse in the Anchor Bible when it is finished, and any new one that will come after that will be far, far more a departure from the text. Quite a few verses, a very good one cited here, very important ones. For example, in Romans 5, 2, where it speaks the fact that we have access by faith to God the Father, by faith is a method. In Romans 13, 9, thou shalt not bear false witness is left out. Well, I think that was uh, an honest gesture on their part, after all, since they were going to bear false witness. It's best to leave that out. Oh, of course, very definitely. And the Bible is steadily being changed into another book with another meaning, very subtly, so that you can find people today who believe that they are uh, good Christians and will cite the Bible to prove almost anything, and they don't realize how far they have strayed. This week I met a woman who was as strong a champion of the civil rights movement as you could hope to find, that believed herself to be an absolutely sound and orthodox Christian. I don't think she had heard anything but social gospel preaching for 20 or 30 years. And she had no recognition, not the faintest, to the extent to which she had been brainwashed. So that as she read the Bible, she was reinterpreting everything there to fit in this new mold. And of course, any version that was recommended from the book was the authentic version as far as she was concerned. I wonder if you comment on this yesterday. Do you see all kinds of tickets? Uh, I was um, out in the afternoon and I saw a man with a sign. And I scarcely believe my eyes that Jesus Christ 
anything and it is not uh, the kind of witness that is at all honoring the Christ. And I think such peoples are foolish. There is an important article. I know this issue. There is a very important article here. Why your church can't be built by Ralph I. Yarnell pointing out that zoning commission laws prohibit building of churches increasingly. I have given a chapter to this subject in the nature of the American system as a matter of zoning laws, but they clearly document this here and point out how the Supreme Court has backed this kind of thing. The strategy today increasingly is to use the law to destroy the law. You don't come out and say you are going to deny religious liberty to certain kinds of churches, but you use the zoning commission to rule them out of existence. You accomplish the same thing. You abolish their right to exist. They cannot exist if you have, by your zoning laws, said they cannot function. Well, it's a very Four years ago, we went to the uh, city planning office in Los Angeles, and it was quite interesting. On the, they would show us the map. Everything was locked up, and here was an area, and it was called Over Church, around mm-hmm. uh, the Hoover area, mm-hmm. and uh, it was quite interesting because. It's called a church, so what are you going to do about it if there's a change in the zoning laws in there at that time? Yes. Well, you can actually say that you don't want a church in an area or in a community entirely, and some cities are ruling out all churches. They're simply saying they are, uh, there are to be no churches in residential areas, no churches in industrial areas, no churches in business areas, so where are they to be? Well, we don't have any room for them. In other new communities, they will simply provide for three churches, a Jewish synagogue, a Roman Catholic church, and one Protestant church to the National Council of Churches. No more. And none of these three groups can have more than the one. And that's it. This is being done. In other cases, they get around it. For example, in Los Altos uh, Hills, they dealt with it by saying that only 8% of the land in the community was to be for recreational, educational, or religious purposes. Now, they very quickly, with all the park areas they set up, ran over the 88%. They make exceptions to the law every time they want to put in a new public school or when they put in Foothills College, but not for the churches. No church of any kind can get a variance from that law. Um, what is your opinion on the uh, in the market area any sort 
who can go anywhere in Los Angeles and get it, and they're not using the opportunities they have. Why provide people with opportunities when they don't want them? And they will sit in school year in and year out and make no attempt to learn anything. And then we are supposed to provide something further for them because ostensibly we have deprived them. This to me is utter nonsense. And uh, it is fantastic the extent to which they expect these things. I was speaking at Fuller Seminary this past Tuesday, and they have had a conference there on race and equality, and this one man, a United Presbyterian Negro leader, Dr. Wilmore, I believe, spoke five or six times, gave the standard civil rights justification. The reason why these people riot is they have a cause, and their cause is the cause of Christ, and so on and so forth. This is the essence of his position. Of course, they sat there and took it. And I tried to get him to realize, but of course it was futile, he was blaming not just the white man, but the white Christian. This is a peculiar thing. And he was saying it was the white Christians who are the worst. These who believe their Bible and have family devotions, they were the ones who would go into the slave quarters and break up the families and separate and sell husband and wife and children who would be deliberately nasty. And I said, isn't there a great deal of mythology in your thinking First, you admit these people believe their Bible from cover to cover, and then you say these people who are so moral in their homes went out there and did these things. I said, can you document that? And I said, I doubt that you can. And I said, uh, you have continually blamed everything that happens to the Negro on the white man, in particular on the good Bible-believing white Christian. I said, what about the responsibility of the Negro? Of course, he wouldn't answer. Because he was not concerned about that. And I said, I don't like the world word equality. But I said, instead of talking, let's use the word equality, and instead of talking about equality of rights, why not talk about an equality of responsibility? I said, why aren't you for that? Again, he wouldn't answer. There's no dealing with these people except in terms of good, hard realities. I think one of the few good uh, columns that Bill Patrick has written was one titled, Let's Treat the Negro Like a White Man. Let's make him keep the law and be as responsible as any other citizen. And if he doesn't clobber him, just like everybody else gets clobbered, if he steps out of line. Uh, I would like to I believe God will. Now we get here into the area of eschatology, doctrine of the last things. There are pre-mill, post-mill, and amillennial positions. I uh, would come closest to being what is called post millennial, although I reject the idea of the millennium as being the something which is in the future and being the period of triumph. This would get us into a long discussion to uh, deal with it, but I do believe that the enemies of Christ shall be defeated, a Christian order prevail throughout the entire world. 
before Christ comes. And I believe that these people are already under sentence. They are going to be destroyed. That they have passed the point of no return with God and in terms of economics. And so we need to figure that they're finished. That there will be a very difficult time of chaos and anarchy before they are out of the way, but we need to begin now to think in terms of reconstruction. No. I don't see how this present world order can continue too many years. Five years, ten, maybe, fifteen, possibly, but I doubt it. That's right, but leadership comes up very quickly. And one of the things that has impressed me as I go around and speak to college young people I spoke three times, and with discussions, it was a total quite a few hours yesterday, from 9.30 to about 4.30. So it was seven hours of speaking, and I was startled at the readiness of those young men especially to grasp everything that I said and to go along with it. And I find this repeatedly, everywhere. So, I think we'll have the leadership before too long. All they want is the teaching. They're ready for it. As far as they're concerned, everything they see around them is bankrupt. Granted, these are handfuls here and there, but they are the elite, the most brilliant younger men. And it only takes a minority, a dedicated minority. assistants and professors and outstanding students from various campuses in Southern California. And it has had to do with moral values and the future. And the gist of the position taken is the most subversive, the most anti-Christian, and they talked about Christianity, the most subversive and anti-Christian thing today is a belief that there are unchanging laws and moral standards. That the essence of progress and true Christianity and true morality is to meet each age with change and to change with it. In other words, the new morality. The death of God school of thought. Now, 
What can this do? Just as what you talked about in Watts means the destruction of the schools there. It's going to lead to anarchy. It's going to lead to anarchy in the educational sphere. And education is breaking down in these universities. Now, it's going to be far, far greater than this. It's going to be a collapse of law and order. This is going to go down the drain. It's going to be an ugly time when it does. But it will go down the drain, and then there will be a period of reconstruction. This has happened over and over again. This has happened at the end of the Roman Empire. It happened at the end of the Middle Ages when they went overboard for humanism. Because the 15th century was an age of thoroughgoing humanism. They had their beatniks then who were wandering from college to college across the face of Europe and creating riots, the Goliards, and they were subversives. They had their sexual freedom leagues, and the Goliards were connected with it, these students. Everything. And it led to the destruction of everything. And a new order had to come out. It would be the same again. I think our trouble with the of this, however, is that this is a planned destruction, a planned chaos. And the planners are welcoming their plans for the reconstruction period also. So the period of truth is will not be in the destruction period, but in the construction period. God did the planning before they ever did. And they're going to run counter to his plan. And if we look too strongly to the, what the opposition is trying to do, we are, in a sense, in danger of becoming Satanists because we believe in the power of Satan rather than of God. And God knows what every plotter is conspiring. And Psalm 2 says, He that sitteth in the circle of the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. So that I don't believe we need to be afraid of these people. We need to share God's laughter. And that's what Luther said. And Luther was living in a very difficult time. And as he taught that song, he summoned every believer to join with God in his heavenly laughter. And I think we need to laugh these people because they conspire in vain. They imagine a vain thing. 